how you do care tasks, whether you do care tasks, how hard it is for you to do care tasks. None of that has anything to do with your character. It doesn't have anything to do with whether you're a good enough person or whether you're worthy of love and belonging or whether you're broken or or not. It literally has no connection to that. So how you do it doesn't matter. Both people need to embrace this idea that good enough is perfect so that the the sort of over-functioner can stop after a while and the under-functioner can go, actually, it's okay for me to walk into my kitchen, do two things for five minutes, and then leave. Welcome to another episode of the Poised Powerful Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Mahan. I coach movement, alignment, and the empowerment that comes from understanding how your body works. This podcast is all about helping regular people adapt to the physical and emotional challenges of new parenthood and hearing some good stories from people getting the crash course. I'm so excited to introduce you to Casey Davis. She is a licensed professional therapist, author, speaker, and the person behind the mental health platform, Struggle Care. KC's compassionate and practical approach to self and home care for those dealing with mental health, physical illness, and hard seasons of life has drawn over a million followers on social media, and her book, How to Keep House While Drowning, has sold over 40,000 copies and is currently an Amazon bestseller. KC Davis began her therapy journey at 16 when she entered treatment for drug addiction and mental health issues. After getting sober, she became a speaker and advocate for mental health and recovery. Professionally, KC has worked most of her career in the field of addiction in roles such as a therapist, consultant, and executive director. She lives in Houston with her husband and two daughters. So welcome, KC. Hello, I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> it, that that question has become such a loaded question in the last two years. <laughs> oh sure. <laughs> but I'm it's I'm good today. I've, I am getting the time today to create and do this podcast. I just feel so lucky. You know, working on my platform is really energizing to me. Mm-hmm. And finding the things in my life that are energizing and life-giving have made all the difference. And then being able to figure out how to get the space to do those things, despite two little kids and a house and a family and all of that, that's kind of the dance of my life. Yes. There is no, you know, catching up. (laughs) No. So I found your platform and I forget how, I'm sure it was a series of one internet thing led me to another. And I was reading your book in my son's bedroom on my phone while I was falling asleep, your book, How to Keep House While Drowning. And I have to say, it's so different and so refreshing. If you haven't read some of the things that are out there, it's a really different take on when you feel like you're completely overwhelmed with your responsibilities that you don't even know where to start. And I will say some aspects of this, for example, I had postpartum depression and I experienced this a lot of times as very heavy fatigue. 
And I described it to my psychiatrist as like, I can look at the dishes in the dishwasher and just feel completely overwhelmed. Like it's just dishes, but (laughs) there's that extra layer of overwhelm. So two things you might be addressing with that, right? So what really did help me, you know, a couple more things. I'll say I had therapy, but I realized toward the, you know, right at the beginning of the pandemic, I needed some extra help. So Zoloft really helped with that, just with getting over that hump of not being as hopeless. But there's a third thing, which is how do I talk to myself, which is a lot of what your work is about. So can you give us just like a little bit of a synopsis of what is struggle care? And you have some six principles that people can use as perhaps little reminders throughout their day. Yeah. So I coined the term struggle care, like I coined a lot of things, which is just like off the cuff one day when I was answering a question on social media and someone had said, you know, I can't believe there's someone talking about how hard it can be to just take care of yourself, how hard it can sometimes be to get the dishes done and the laundry done. I didn't realize anybody else struggled with this. And I remember saying to her, you know, not only are you not alone, but you're in good company. Like when I started talking about the difficulties in getting these things around the house done and talking about the little hacks and the little mental shifts we can make to make these things easier. My account went from 6,000 people to 20,000 people in less than seven days. Mm-hmm. That's how in good company you are if you struggle with that. And, and I had said to her, you know, welcome to struggle care. And it's sort of a play on the term self-care. I famously dislike the term self-care just because like a lot of concepts in the the therapeutic or activist community, you know, they start out being very specific and then Mm -hmm. they get picked up by kind of pop psychology circles and wellness circles. And after several years, they, they're almost so ambiguous. They lose their meaning. Yes. And then they go from a really helpful term to a term that I think a lot of us even maybe have a negative reaction to. Yes. Because we're struggling, we're stressed, we feel like we're drowning. And then someone's like, well, you just need self-care. And we think, oh, great. One more thing to put on my list that I'm going to fail at, that I'm not going to get to, that I won't have time for. And just a lot of of the idea self-care has kind of been co-opted by like rich white women. It's become bubble baths and pedicures. And it sort of has a capitalist slant now. Like if you have the money and the time to spend on hobbies and spa treatments and thing and therapy and things like that, then that's self-care. So I find the term unhelpful for a lot of reasons. So when I started talking about struggle care, it's this idea that in the midst of the struggle, we can learn to care for ourselves, that you don't have to get out of the struggle. Like getting out of the struggle isn't how we're going to care for ourselves. We're not going to self-care ourselves out of the struggle. Mm-hmm. And, and just like you said, you know, what's going to help someone sort of get their head above water is going to be a really unique combination of variables for everyone. You know, I'm, I'm similar to you. I had a therapist, I got on medication, um, and I had to address some of the ways I was speaking to myself and I needed to build some skills, but not only is that combination of factors going to be different for everyone, but not everyone is even going to have access to the factors that might be helpful to them. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted struggle care to be about learning how to care for yourself right where you are right now. 
I, I don't want my tools to be ever seen as I'm going to fix it. I'm going to lift you up out of this. I'm going to none of that. Like so many of us are fighting to get our heads above water and mm-hmm. struggle care is the place where I say, let me teach you how to breathe underwater. Let me teach you a way that you can right now, even if things don't get better, even if you don't get better at things that you can relieve some suffering, Mm -hmm. you can introduce some relief and we can begin to cultivate a functional space where, where you can begin to have pockets of contentment and joy, even in the midst of chaos. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's so much in there. I think we, you know, we live in such a solutions oriented culture and we have a lot of narratives around overcoming. Now, you pretty much only see a depiction of a person with a disability if they're overcoming something. Mm-hmm. You know, and having lots of folks in my life with disabilities and mental health struggles. And during this whole pandemic, my husband had a series of health problems where he finally got diagnosed with chronic illness. And a chronic illness isn't cured and doesn't go away it's sort of recognizing that, you know, these, these struggles, they're not going away. <laughs> we don't, we shouldn't put off, you know, for the time when things are quote better, <laughs> you know, whatever that is, you know, we have to figure out and we're in the process of figuring out, okay, what's, what's going to work for us right here. And it's pro- might not look like somebody else's home and how they handle things. Yeah, I think that's right. And there's a lot of practitioners and researchers out there that are doing such incredible research and work around these concepts of self-compassion and mm-hmm. shame and vulnerability and courage. I mean, I'm thinking about Dr. Brene Brown, Dr. Kristen Neff, mm-hmm. and I, I was so influenced them by them as a therapist and as a clinician. And, and then I got, you know, stuck inside my home for 18 months during the pandemic lockdown. And I, I think what happened really was that a lot of these concepts that I had been using in my practice, I had to learn how to use them in my home with these very specific logistical concerns I was having about getting my dishes done. Mm-hmm. And so I like to think of struggle care as also a platform where we're going to talk about how to help ourselves function in the areas where I think most people take for granted right? Like, yes. I don't think most people are, you know, when you think about like, oh, I'm struggling, where do I go? And it's like, well, here's how you can work on your relationship. And here's when you struggle with your, you know, a lot of it's kind of high level existential. I want to find myself. I want to be more enlightened. I want to be more authentic in my relationships. And all that stuff is wonderful. But I like to think that what I'm doing is taking a lot of those concepts and bringing them like way down to the floor of the hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, someone may not be thinking like, how do I show up more authentic in my relationships and follow my dreams? They're just thinking, I have maggots in my crock pot because I'm too overwhelmed by my dishes. And now I'm too scared to tell anybody that I'm overwhelmed by my dishes. And now my choices are to to either try and clean this crock pot, which I've been trying to do for three weeks, or maybe I could throw it away, but then I'd have the shame about how I'm killing the earth. And like that, you know, someone in that spot isn't necessarily thinking about like, how do I show up authentically and change the world? But people need help right there. We need help with, 
I have postpartum depression and I can't seem to get my teeth brushed. And instead of sitting around and thinking about how I should be brushing my teeth every day and how it should be easy and how if I just tried harder, what would it be like if we just believed ourselves when we said something was hard for us and worked around it? When I was pregnant, when I was like eight months pregnant, I had this problem where when I would sleep, there was so much weight on my like sciatic nerve that my legs would go to sleep. When I would wake up to have to pee in the middle of the night, I couldn't walk. Physically, everything was numb and there was so much pain that I couldn't walk. When I went to my physical therapist and said like, this is happening. Like if you made me stand up, I would fall to the floor. He had this approach where it was like, this is a legitimate struggle. The way we need to approach it is to talk about Can we get you some adaptive tools? Mm -hmm. Can we work on an adaptive routine? Like we need to find a way to get you to the bathroom. And his first thought was like, let's get you a pair of crutches. I don't want you to fall when you're pregnant. Let's talk about ways that you can get out of the bed, ways that you can like wait a couple seconds. But at no point was it like, well, is it really that painful? Well, here's how we can make that pain go away. It was like, you're pregnant, the pain won't go away, but here's how we can figure out how to get you to the bathroom. And I like to think that most of us have these categories in our head of like problems that we think are legitimate and deserve that kind of approach and problems that we feel like are not legitimate, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I go to my dentist and say, I'm just having trouble getting my teeth brushed. Maybe if you have a good dentist, they'll approach it a certain way. But most people would be like, yeah, listen, I'm going to give you a lecture on how important it is to brush your teeth. I'm going to tell you that, like, you just got to do it. Like, you just have to do it. Right. But like my physical therapist never would have looked at me nine months pregnant saying my my legs hurt so bad. I can't go to the bathroom and go. You well, you just have to do it. Like not going to the bathroom is not an option because he recognized that, like, this is a legitimate problem and we need adaptive tools, adaptive routines. I think what I would like for people to hear from my platform is let's take these things like I'm having trouble brushing my teeth. I'm having trouble changing my sheets. I can't seem to get into the shower for weeks at a time. And let's just, what if we just assumed that was a legitimate problem and approached it in that same way that my PT did, which is what kind of routines could help? What kind of tools could help? Where, how could we change the environment and introduce some sort of little life hacks that could help you not fix the barrier. I'm, you know, I can't fix your depression. I don't know why your executive functioning is out of whack and can't brush your teeth. I don't know, you know, I can't make your sensory issues go away. But if we treated this like it was a legitimate barrier and figured out how to work around it so that you could have better quality of life, and that takes a lot of mental shifts. And that's kind of where that part about how we talk to ourselves comes in. Mm -hmm. So I think we should go through the six pillars just briefly cover each of them. And then I think it'll kind of make clear why this is different from sort of our American, just try harder as a solution to basically everything. Yeah. So what happened was as I was answering people's questions, I, I really found that the questions and the concerns and the struggle around this concept came in basically six different little buckets Mm -hmm. And so the six pillars are the concepts that sort of undergird this big paradigm shift we're going to make. And the first one is that care tasks are morally neutral. 
So care task is a term that I coined when referring to housework or hygiene, really any task that is about caring for yourself. And first of all, just that vocabulary shift is going to help us realize that this isn't about external standards of being good enough. This is just about learning how to care for ourselves. So Mm -hmm. this could be laundry, dishes, cleaning, tidying, organizing, eating, cooking, grocery shopping, scheduling your medical appointments, taking your medication. I mean, it's really anything. That's all of the things underneath this care, uh, care task umbrella. And when I say that care tasks are morally neutral, what I mean is that how you do care tasks, whether you do care tasks, how hard it is for you to do care tasks, it has none of that has anything to do with your character. It doesn't have anything to do with whether you're a good enough person or whether you're worthy of love and belonging or whether you're broken or, or not. Mm-hmm. It, it literally has no connection to that. Everybody just needs somebody to say that to them. You cannot be a bad person or mother or spouse dep- like because the dishes aren't done or the laundry's mm-hmm. never put up. Mm, but there's so much baggage and so many things and, and systems to try to solve problems. We're, we're adding more. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the answer is we need to take away. Yeah, because that's that's why the shift is so important. And you hit the nail on the head is that when I'm having a character problem, when I'm making character mistakes, if I am being mean to someone, if I had t- told a lie, if I was really inconsiderate to someone, the answer to that is to try harder. Next time, don't do that. And, and maybe there's even some undergirding things about like, okay, I need to go to therapy and fix those sort of things, right? So I'm not denying that there's some inner work, but the effort there of Hey, I need to do better. I need to do better. Like there is, there is one, like being honest is being honest. There's not a lot Mm -hmm. of gray. And so if I want to be honest, I need to try and be honest. Mm -hmm. And so we get stuck in the, in this sort of, there's one way to do this. There's one way, like mean is mean is mean and kind is kind is kind. And I have, there's this binary. Okay. I don't want to be mean. I need to figure out how to be kind. And we're putting all of our effort into that. And so when we think of our failure to do the dishes as laziness or some other character judgment, we get stuck in this one way of thinking Mm -hmm. that like dishes have to be done one certain way. And if I'm not able to get them done that way, the only answer is to just tell myself to try harder, figure it out. Once we realize that dishes are not a moral obligation, they're just a functional task we realize how many like quote unquote rules we have. And so what this looked like for me was when I sort of realized, okay, the way you do dishes has nothing to do with being a good person. I'm just someone who deserves to have clean dishes to eat off of. That's it. Mm-hmm. The, the, the purpose of doing dishes is to get some clean dishes to eat off of. So then if that's the only purpose, well, then it doesn't really matter how I approach this. And I actually ended up getting a dish rack and putting my dirty dishes on a dish rack as I went throughout the day. Mm-hmm. it's very hard for me to like load the dishwasher as I go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some people say clean, just clean as you go. Right. And that's that sort of almost moral obligation stuck in. There's one way to do it. So just do it. Just do it. like clean as you go is literally just someone saying, do it better. <laughs> or it's you worked in a restaurant. So there's mm-hmm. like a system you already have. It's clicking, clicking for your brain. 
Yeah. I did actually think about getting a bus tray though for dishes. <laughs> oh yes. I've done that too. I have one on my second and third story so that we could just yes. put dishes straight into the little bus tubs. But mm-hmm. so now I put my dirty dishes on a dish rack as I go throughout the day. And at the end of the day, when it's time to unload and reload my dishwasher, I'm not as overwhelmed. I found mm-hmm. that I'm really overwhelmed by a big pile of dishes in the sink, but I'm not as overwhelmed when they're neatly stacked on a dish rack. Mm-hmm. And so that's my example is like, okay, it doesn't matter how I do it. It just matters that it functions and mm-hmm. this functions for me. And I don't know why but I don't have to spend time figuring out why I can't do them straight out of the sink. What if I just assumed that was a legitimate problem and worked around it? And I didn't have to force myself to become somebody who could suddenly just load everything up as I go either, because Mm -hmm. it's a morally neutral task. And so that frees me up to find any sort of ritual or system or assistive tools to make dishes function for me. And that's Mm -hmm. the kind of creativity that gets unleashed once we realize care tasks are morally neutral. So that's the first pillar. (laughs) Yeah. Care tasks, morally neutral. I want to point out that like, you know, you can go meditate to practice non-judgmental awareness, or you can just start telling yourself this thought now, you know, if you're just like, oh, I feel so bad. I need to do this. I need it. Morally neutral. Yep. It's morally neutral. All right. Let's go on to some next pillars. So the second pillar is, you know, whenever I talk about the only reason to do a care task is not because good people do that, do it this way. Good moms keep a clean house. It's simply because you're a person that deserves to function. The next thing that comes up for a lot of people is they say, well, I actually don't believe that. Mm. I don't believe that I deserve to function because of ABC. So that's why the second pillar is that you deserve kindness regardless of your level of functioning. We talk a lot about reconceptualizing care tasks as kindnesses to future self. So I don't want to do the dishes at night, but I know that it would be such a kindness to morning Casey to wake up and be able to easily get my kids cups out of, you know, clean already and put the milk in them and things like that. Mm -hmm. If we're really struggling with feeling worthless or feeling like we're not worthy of care, that's when this pillar comes in. Because the truth is, is that you don't have to do anything to be worthy of kindness. And you don't have to care about yourself to start taking steps to care for yourself. Mm -hmm. And we sometimes have those feelings for other people more easily than we have them for ourselves. So Mm -hmm. it's that a little bit of that awareness piece. Like, I hope, you know, you wouldn't look at your four-year-old and be like, get it together, kid. You know, you can't make your own breakfast. (laughs) Well, and that's really how I, there's a ritual I talk about in my book called closing duties. And actually Mm -hmm. the reason that came about is because I sleep in every Sunday morning and my husband gets up with the kids and I found myself on Saturdays, like cleaning up the kitchen and getting things ready because I didn't want him to be stressed out in the morning Mm. and just sort of like waking up one day and going, oh my gosh, like it's so much easier for me to get motivated and initiate the behavior of like setting up the space for success for someone else that I care about from a motive of kindness. Mm -hmm. Why am I not thinking of myself that way? Like when I'm going to clean up, it's, Oh, I can't believe I let it get this bad. I don't want to do this. I'm so overwhelmed. I'm such a piece of junk. You know what I mean? And then, but when it comes to doing something for someone else, 
all of a sudden I have this compassionate space that I'm able to hold that goes, I care about this person. I want them to function in the morning. I want them to be free of that stress. And so I'm just going to take a few steps. And that really is, you know, I mentioned Dr. Kristen Knapp earlier. She's the researcher on mindful self-compassion. That's really what the basis of self-compassion is, is that Mm -hmm. we find that place where how would we treat a friend? How would we speak to a friend? How would we comfort a friend? How would we hold a non-judgmental space for a friend? And that was really helpful for me because it doesn't just apply to when your friends have done the right thing. I have friends that have done the wrong thing, that have made mistakes, that have screwed up royally. And when they come to me sorrowful and heartbroken, I'm still able to find a space that says, you're human. I'm here with you. I, I get it. I still love you. We all make mistakes. It's going to be okay. I know this is painful. It's really about finding that same space. I know, So I know I'm capable of it, mm-hmm. but it's about finding that space and allowing me to be there for myself in that same way. Mm-hmm. And so that shift is huge. I, I have a feeling we're going to get more into this in terms of how we talk to ourselves and where those thoughts come from. Yes. And so it kind of rolls into the next pillar, which is that shame is the enemy of functioning. Mm -hmm. My experience as a clinician is that when people are in shame, thinking I'm broken, I can't believe this, not only do they not reach out for help because they think they're alone in their perceived failures, but also it's very arresting. It's Mm -hmm. very difficult to get motivated when you're in shame. And and shame can be a good short-term motivator. Mm-hmm. but it's very rarely a very good long-term motivator. In fact, I find it has the opposite effect. It actually kind of yes. slows us down, makes us feel paralyzed, makes us turn inward. Those two go hand in hand. And then the next one is that rest is a right and not a reward. So many of us believe that we're not allowed to sit down and rest unless the to-do list is done. And the problem with that is that care tasks are cyclical. They're never mm-hmm. done they're never done. There's always something else to do. And so if you're waiting to allow yourself to rest, to recreate until it's done, you'll never be done. And nobody can go, 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 go forever. So what happens is that you try and then eventually you sort of collapse and rest or do nothing, but then you feel guilty the whole time. Like Mm -hmm. you don't deserve to do nothing. Then you don't actually get any rest because you you're working in shame, you're resting in shame, you're never actually energizing yourself again. When you do that for a long time, you create this big rest deficit, and then you don't want to do anything because you're so desperately craving rest. So Mm -hmm. you think to yourself, well, I must just be lazy. I must just Mm. be lazy. And if I'm lazy, I should work harder. And so then you do the opposite of what you need, which is to push yourself to be more productive when really I find people that think they're lazy don't need to work on working harder. They need to work on resting more authentically and allowing themselves to do nothing without shame. Mm. So lazy is probably the biggest insult in our country. Mm-hmm. And I think we've associated that, right? That lazy people are not deserving of kindness. Yeah. Like you have to prove that you're worthy of kindness. And we can shame people out of their laziness. That's another belief we have. We can shame people out of their laziness. I personally don't believe that laziness exists. I have never met a person who, when they come in saying they're lazy or when their family says they're lazy, after actually unpacking with them the barriers in their life, it's almost never laziness. I've never actually seen like a character failing of laziness. 
mm-hmm. seen depression. I've seen mental health. I've seen neurodivergence. I've seen overwhelm and stress and procrastination and all sorts of things, trauma, lack of support, lack of skills. But I, I don't think I've ever really seen true laziness. Mm. I'm thinking about this. I want to bring up, I know you were diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. Mm-hmm. And I've got a lot of folks in my life who are sort of coming into that realization. My dear husband, slightly too old to have been diagnosed as a child, sort of slipped through the cracks. And I know for a lot of ADHD folks, this is like they're always sort of concealing, trying mm-hmm. to conceal that they have ADHD and sort of fighting that sort of internal struggle of like, oh, I'm lazy. Oh, I can't get it together. Do you maybe just speak a little bit about that particular experience and also that it's still misunderstood by a lot of folks if you are doing things differently? Yes. So ADHD is typically thought of as someone that can't pay attention, but that's not true. Actually, what it is, is that we have difficulty regulating our attention. Mm -hmm. So when we find something interesting we can't stop thinking about it. We can't stop doing, we can sort of hyper-focus on something. And a lot of times that thing that we're hyper-focusing on isn't actually the most important thing. So, so we might have something that's time sensitive over here or important Mm -hmm. over here or should be priority over here. But instead of saying, well, I'm going to pay attention to this thing. It's hard for us to pay attention to that thing. And we get distracted onto something that is capturing our attention and so it's a it's about regulating that attention. And it affects a lot of executive functioning in the brain. And executive functioning skills are things like working memory. So people with ADHD often find that if they put something down and turn around, they forget. Yes. It's not exactly your short-term memory, but it's a part of your short-term memory that holds new information in suspension until you figure out what to do with it. So Mm -hmm. like I have a good girlfriend that does not have ADHD and she talks about like when she has things she needs to do or around the house, it's like she has various browser tabs open in her mind and she can flip between them without losing one. And for me, I can only have one tab open. And if I open a new tab, it automatically exits that previous tab. So if I'm thinking... I'm hungry and I need to go downstairs and I'm walking downstairs and I see on the way down that some laundry needs to be thrown in. Well, where my friend could open a second tab, do the laundry. And then when she's done, that first tab is still there and and kind of go along. When I open up the laundry tab, I forget that I was going down to get something to eat and vice versa. If I ignore that laundry, if I go, Ooh, I've got to do that later. And I keep on going something to eat. I I will not remember to circle back on the laundry. So that makes me a very messy person. We have difficulty prioritizing. We have difficulty with something called uh, task initiation. We know we need to do something, but we can't seem to make ourselves do it. So it's really about regulating that attention. We have difficulty with transitions. It shows up in a very stereotypical way with some children, but a lot of children fall through the cracks. Like for example... Mm -hmm. I was always very good at school until I started having addiction issues. I never did my homework ever, but the way that school that I was in, the way that they weighted the classroom assignments and the tests against the homework, you could never do any homework. But because I was always interested in school, I always paid attention. 
I always listened to the lectures and I would retain the information really, really well. And then I would ace all of my tests. I would do really well on all of the classwork and I would get good grades. Mm-hmm. So nobody ever flagged me as a kid with ADHD because, oh, she's doing well in school. Well, but only when I was in a structured environment, sitting in the front row in subjects mm-hmm. that interested me. Mm-hmm. But once I go home, I wasn't remembering I had homework. I couldn't, I couldn't seem to impose any type of organizational system for myself. So that's what it looks like. So I I didn't get diagnosed until I was 35 or 34. And that made me realize all of these things that looked like laziness, looked like not caring, looked like, you know, being self-absorbed because I'm always interrupting people are, are actually just because my brain is different. ADH people, it's not that we can't organize, it's that we organize differently. So very much that, like, you know, I know my husband just like, he had to come up with all these little, you know, sort of hacks and systems that worked for him, but maybe looked weird to mm-hmm. other people. And I think, I think that's, that's tough. <laughs> I mean, that pressure to to sort of be like other people, which can really undermine your confidence. Yeah. And you have to be so kind to yourself to allow mm-hmm. yourself to pick a different, to not fit in that box, to pick something that works for you. You really have to believe that that barrier is morally neutral. Like it has nothing to do with you not being a good enough person. So one of the other pillars is that good enough is perfect a lot of us are raised with this idea of like, do everything with excellence, do everything with excellence. But the truth is like, you cannot have an excellent life if you Mm -hmm. have to do every single thing with excellence. Like you should be half-assing some stuff. Like we should be prioritizing the things that are, um, you know, going to contribute the most to our lives. And then we should be finding like somewhere between bare minimum and medium functioning and like trying to do things to that degree so that there's mm-hmm. enough energy over to do things that actually make us feel alive. Mm-hmm. And that's why I always say like good enough is perfect. And this mm-hmm. is where we really hit on a lot of people that are perfectionists, that are idealists that will say, well, you know, there are, there are people out there that when their kitchen is needs to be cleaned, they'll go, this is such a big job and they'll start cleaning and they won't stop till 2 a.m. And then there are people that will look at it and go, oh my God, this is such a big job. I'm too overwhelmed by it. So I can't even start. And yes. both of these people need to embrace this idea that good enough is perfect so that the, the sort of over-functioner can stop after a while and the under-functioner can go, actually, it's okay for me to walk into my kitchen, do two things for five minutes and then leave. So that's why we say good enough is perfect. Let's embrace that. And then the last pillar is that you can't save the rainforest if you're depressed. Yes. I think the environment is a big issue. I also, I I think it's just such a piece of, we're, we're trying to be aware and careful of so many issues at the, the same time. Family dinners. I remember somehow there was like a lot of PSAs about family dinners when I was younger. And I've just noticed there are so many expectations on dinner that perhaps your like stereotypical 50s housewife, she could have just served like meatloaf and potatoes every night. <laughs> Whereas we're sort of like, okay, well, we have to have a family dinner. So we have that quality time or the kids, you know, will end up all going buck wild. We, you know, it has to be healthy. We have to introduce a variety of foods. 
obesity is a problem and it's because of moms and the way mm-hmm. they serve dinner and it's be organic so that we're not poisoning us. And yes. so, but it needs to be late enough that dad can be there, but early enough. So your kids can still go to bed, at, you know, a good time because they're all sleep deprived. You're right. There's all these competing ideals. And, and I'm not saying who cares, you know, I think climate change is real. I think it needs oh, yes. real activism. So I'm not saying who cares, let's just do whatever. I'm just asking people to consider that their barriers are legitimate and mm-hmm. to raise their consideration of their barriers to that level of needing crutches to get to the bathroom. Because mm-hmm. I tell people that story about like, I had to get crutches to go to the bathroom. And this was only an issue for maybe the last six weeks of my pregnancy. But you know what I never had someone say to me was, I can't believe you purchased something that you only needed for six weeks. Like what a waste. It's just going to go to a landfill now. How dare you? You know, when I go out and I buy N95 masks Mm -hmm. and I wear them, like I've never had someone say, how dare you buy single use plastic? Like, you're the reason that this world is going to shit. I can't believe you. You're so selfish. I've never had someone look at a diabetic using single use needles and say, ugh, I can't believe this is why the world's going to the toilet is single use plastic like this. Like we really do have this conception. And I, it was really helpful for me, a woman that I had on my podcast, her name is Imani Barberin and she's a disability advocate. She talks a lot about the intersection of disability and environmentalism. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was, she pointed out to me, like we, it's not that we think that waste is bad. It's Mm -hmm. that we have set this arbitrary level of waste that is morally acceptable Mm-hmm. And anything above that is morally unacceptable. But where that line gets set as a collective conscious is always like according to a healthy person or a person with quote unquote acceptable illnesses. Mm. We already are using things and wasting something is not the same thing as using it. They are literally opposites. Mm-hmm. If you're using it, you're not wasting it. So getting people into this place where they're talking not about this idealized version of themselves that has, you know, breaks down the cardboard every week and take and drives it to a recycling plant, but -hmm. really looking at their legitimate options. You know, you've been depressed for a long time now. You have all of this stuff that is cluttering your space that is preventing you from functioning. And it might be that the best thing for you to do is to just throw it all away. I know that you want to sell this and donate this and repurpose this, but we need to get you to a functioning space. And the reality is, it's like, you're not going to get this stuff to those places. Let's be mm-hmm. real. Like you're, you're really struggling. Same thing with people that are having trouble eating. We talk about getting prepackaged food so mm-hmm. that they can eat consistently. Pre-cut, pre-sliced. Yes. And sometimes this is just a season of your life when you're under a lot of stress. Sometimes this is something that you're going to need for the rest of your life, but that, you know, you get to set the, the line of what are, what do I need to function and some of those things are accessibility issues. Some of those things will be adaptive routines and products and, and packaging. And then when you get to a functioning level, you mm-hmm. will have the capacity to participate in activism efforts in a way that's actually helpful. Like mm-hmm. we're not going to turn around the climate crisis by shaming people with depression out of their single use hummus containers. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, we had this issue with like straws. Probably people remember a couple yeah. of years ago, you know, people are like, get rid of straws. Like that became a campaign. And then disability activists said, some people need those. And then a lot of places have adapted to straws are available, <laughs> but you don't necessarily, maybe you could request one. I don't know. I think we did have, hopefully those, those like things are changing a little, a little bit, but you know, it is difficult because we're talking about like in our making some things morally neutral, but the truth is our ideas and ideals do show up. Mm-hmm. But then when it comes time to really show up for systemic change, that requires a lot of energy yes. to sustain. Exactly. So you have to be mindful of where you're spending your energy. And we don't need a few people doing environmentalism perfectly. We need Mm -hmm. a lot of people doing it imperfectly. Mm -hmm. So choosing the way in which you can engage in the causes that that you care about, where your effort is going to go the farthest. Mm -hmm. And I think choosing between your household using a little bit more plastic or a little bit more electricity so that you can function or a little bit more water so that you can function to be able to have the energy to engage on a systemic level. Because again, like the climate crisis is not going to be turned around by individual households going waste-free. Like it is only going to be turned around at a governmental level, at a corporate level, at a legislative level. And that takes a lot of people with enough capacity to lobby for sustained change. Mm -hmm. So I just want people to get out of the eco shame when it comes to trying to find routines and and accessibility that works for them to function. Mm -hmm. It is sort of interesting because the reality of the fact is like, we don't know what goes on in other people's homes in some senses, especially, you know, in COVID times, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure if it's social media and being able to see into other people's homes and well, or what they want you to see of their home. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Your home looks really lovely right now. What I can see of it is a very nice square. I, 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 I especially appreciate. Oh, so see, there we go. I especially appreciate the ginger cat. Yes. <laughs> well, and what's funny is that, you know, we're always comparing, you know, when I, when I first got sober, the like the line or the quote that always stuck in my head is that, you know, I'm always comparing my insides to everybody else's outsides, mm-hmm. you know, how I feel about myself. And then I look at somebody who looks like they like themselves and I'm thinking, mm-hmm. Ugh, see, they're better. When I really, the reality is I don't know what that person's thinking or feeling or what their life is. And a few years after that, I heard some, the way somebody put it, they said, we're always comparing our behind the scenes cuts to somebody else's highlight reel. And I feel like that's especially applicable to the social media age. I see the inside of my house. I know what it looks like Monday through Sunday. I know what the banana that my kids had for lunch two days ago may still be sitting on the counter or something like that. But then I look at somebody else's social media feed and I see this beautifully curated space. But the reality is I don't know what's right outside of that camera lens. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many bananas they pushed over to the side. And even if they didn't, even if their house looks exactly like that, I don't know what kind of privileges or barriers that person has. I don't know how they would be showing up in life if they had the same privileges or barriers as I do. So it's just kind of a fool's errand to set 
your own worthiness according to the information you get from what people are offering you about their lives. And you, quite famously, you let people watch you clean your kitchen on TikTok. I do. Which a lot of people would not, ooh, they'd be too scared. Now, granted, you chose to show your kitchen. Maybe there was some other area. (laughs) You're not seeing my bathroom today. But what has that been like? It's just an exercise of, I don't know, releasing. (laughs) It's really, it's really a pretty gratifying experience for me because I, I do know that it's morally neutral. I also know that, so I'm, I'm almost the reversed case. Whereas most people are only showing you when everything is tidy and clean. I'm actually pretty much only showing you when it's not. And we always assume that what we see on social media is like, we just take this 10 second window and then we extrapolate it to their whole lives. So whereas you're seeing somebody's really clean and shiny, you know, bedroom and you're going, Oh, they must live that way all the, all the time. And I can't keep up. People do the same thing to me. They, they look at one shot of this, like really, really messy, dysfunctional space. And they think, how could you live this way? You must be a bad mother. You must be a yada, yada, yada. You know, my house runs in cycles like everybody else's. There are times mm-hmm. when it is neat and tidy. And there are times when it is really messy because maybe it I'm about to clean it and that it's always looks the messiest it's going to look like right before you clean it. And I take that opportunity to show people for me, this is a normal condition for my house to get into for where I am. I've had really hard times where maybe that, that point in time lasted longer. I've been in places, places in my life where I've been really supported and everything's firing on all cylinders. And maybe that is really just a afternoon snapshot and it it gets Mm -hmm. taken care of quickly, but it's been really gratifying to see people say, I've never seen a house that looks like mine. I've never seen you know, somebody's kitchen that looks like mine. And I'm thinking, you know, I get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those comments. And we're all just sitting in our normal homes, isolated, afraid to let anybody in, but we're all in the same spot. Mm -hmm. Like another thing that makes it complicated is, you know, there's an expert for everything now, you know, like it's, there are people who are like, okay, how to introduce foods to your kids and like make it fun. And here's how to organize this and here. And this is lovely. But it's sort of like you're looking at one individual person's like specific talent. And we're yeah. all trying to be talented at all of these things and load I'm them so on. Glad you said that. Yes. Our shoulders. I used to talk about how, like, as a young mom, when I was pregnant, when my baby was for babies, I'm reading all of the mommy blogs and it's like, okay, this is the per- the baby led weaning blog from like the food mm-hmm. therapist. And I'm reading the like discipline, gentle discipline from like the parenting coach. And I'm reading the, how to teach your kids to read from the speech therapist. And I'm reading, you know, like, and it's like, I'm taking all of these blogs, all of these experts. I feel as though. I have to do all of these things at that same level as all of these experts. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there is no, like there's a blog for every part of your life as a parent, but there's no blog that tells you how you're supposed to do what all of the blogs say at once. And at the end of the day, I had to realize like a blog is not raising my children. Like nope. a human being is. Mm-hmm. If I try to do all of those like ideal things at once, not only will I not be able to pull it off, but if I do, I won't be able to sustain it. And then I'll burn out and not be able to do every anything. And I had to realize like, nobody is doing all of the good things at the same time. The days when I, my house is clean, it's because the TV has been all, on all day. And 
the days when I am cooking with my kids, the house looks like a bomb went off. And the days when I've taken them outside for some like really magical memory making at the zoo is like the day that we're eating like happy meals on the way home because we don't have enough time to cook. Like, it's not that I can't engage in all of those levels, like those expertise things, but I had to really shift my idea from I'm doing all of those things simultaneously mm-hmm. to like, there are seasons and mm-hmm. there are days and like, we're in a season right now where we don't do a family dinner, like speaking of family dinners, because although family dinners have a lot of benefits, there are also benefits to not doing them. There are benefits to my kids getting in bed at seven and there are benefits to me and my husband having an adult dinner together. And there are benefits to all sorts of things. I am engaging in different benefits at this time. I sometimes, you know, I've had that realization of sometimes like I could try to create a beautiful dinner with like a protein and a carbohydrate and sides and the whole, but I've realized sometimes my son, if he's waiting till six o'clock to eat, we're just losing it here. So the most, if you want to dial down to the basics of like, okay, he needs food placed in front of him by a certain time maybe that perfect meal can wait. (laughs) I went on a um, parenting blog recently and we were talking about like stress and the pandemic and and how parents can, you know, handle that. And Mm -hmm. he asked me like, so how did you manage to continue to like, like engage in respectful parenting in the pandemic when all these things were hard? And I think he was looking to me for like some sort of really like therapeutic answer about like counting to 10 or doing it. And I was like, I turned the TV on and he was like, oh, and I was like, no, yeah. Like the TV has been on for 18 months straight. Like Mm -hmm. it's not on 12 hours a day, but like when I'm really, really struggling, like it'll be on for three hours and then we'll go, okay, let's take a break. We're going to do something. Maybe for an hour, we'll do something else. And then I feel it start to rise. And then I feel my patients start to go and I feel myself start to struggle and I go TV's back on. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that like, there are no downsides kids watching too much TV. I'm just Mm -hmm. saying the downside and screaming at my children is Mm -hmm. much more important to me. It'd be ideal if I could do both. And you know what? I, it doesn't look like that today as much because I am getting more support and I, things are getting better, but there was a long period of time where those were my, those were my legitimate choices. And I had to stop beating myself up long enough to go, you know what? These are the choices I actually have to work with right now. And it is more important to me that I remain kind to my children and available to them emotionally than worry about what's going to happen if they watch too much Peppa Pig. <laughs> They'll so get really cute British accents. Yeah, there you go. Straight from a therapist's mouth. I mean, on that note, I mean, these all these things we often keep a secret. What our sleep routine or lack thereof actually looks like, how much yep. screen time the kids are actually getting both of those things, people just had to do what worked, especially during a pandemic with limited societal support for parents, especially parents of children under five. Exhale, dropping the shoulders. (laughs) Yeah, it was traumatizing. And it is continues to be traumatizing. And I, Mm -hmm. I think that any parent listening to this needs to give themselves a moment to recognize that they have parented through and may still be parenting through a very big trauma. Mm-hmm. And your brain might instantly just pop in right now and say, well, it could be worse because in such a, such a country right now, mm-hmm. yes, we still have compassion 
compassion going both ways. <laughs> things don't stop being hard just because harder things exist. Mm-hmm. I think also I just sort of am interested in this question of like, why do we go seeking like complicated or elaborate or just somebody else's system? <laughs> because mm-hmm. your struggle care isn't like you give suggestions and different hacks, but it's not like a full, for example, not to knock Marie Kondo. If it works for you, that's fabulous. She seems like a lovely person also. But yeah. I will say it's not as specific as that. It's yeah. a different different character. than Like we want somebody else to be like, okay, bullet by bullet. <laughs> yes. What, what do I do here? Yeah. And I think what it comes down to, and I always tell people this, is like I don't have a system. I have a philosophy. Mm-hmm. And Marie Kondo is actually a really great example of someone who has a philosophy and yes. a system. Yes. A, a prescriptive system. Well, yeah. And, and it comes, it's based in Shinto. She yeah. was a Shinto stri- shrine keeper. So, you know, a lot of systems, you know, for example, like there are a lot of religions that have elaborate mm-hmm. systems for eating and whatnot. Right. Mm-hmm. And if it falls under your philosophy, it's not like needless, conver- you know, complication. No. It, it makes sense to you. It enriches you. I did those systems and turns out none of those systems worked for me, Mm -hmm. but I still was impacted by parts of her philosophy that to this Mm -hmm. day have changed my relationship with my home, particularly her philosophy around gifts and Mm. whether that gift has already been given to you. And so you don't need to hold on to the actual object. Like that has Mm -hmm. been really helpful to me. And I have actually specifically stayed away from a prescriptive system. And a couple of reasons. One is that I think I recognize that there is no one system that's going to work for every person. Mm -hmm. And the other part of that is that I think when we're in a certain place of struggle and we're really doubting our own worthiness, we are looking for the system that promises to get our life together because we believe Mm -hmm. that once our life is together, whatever that together means for us, Once I get my life together, once I get my space together, then I will, and then you fill in the blank, then I'll feel better, then I'll feel worthy, then I can relax, then I won't be stressed, then I won't hurt, then I'll feel worthy of ABC. And so we latch on to these systems, whatever the new system is. And again, this isn't the fault of the people coming up with the systems. This is just sort of how we are geared towards looking for meaning and and looking for solution and we latch onto it and we get excited and we get motivated because this is good. This is what's going to do it. This is what's Mm going to turn my life around. And for a lot of us, we engage in those systems for days or weeks and then we kind of fall off and we're not as motivated and they don't work and we don't keep it up. And then we feel shame about that. And we start that Mm -hmm. cycle again. And I really wanted to stay away from a prescriptive system because I didn't want people engaging with my content in that way. I didn't want to Mm -hmm. promise anyone that I was going to fix them. I didn't want anyone to feel as though, well, if I could just do the struggle care way, then I will like, no, you'll be the same person. And in fact, it's really important that before you engage in any type of system or product or, you know, organizational, whatever, that you realize that you are just as worthy when your house is a mess as you are when it's clean, that you are, just as worthy mm-hmm. of kindness and belonging and compassion and functioning when you're eating whatever diet you think is ideal versus when you've eaten fast food every single day this week that you've door dashed with money you don't really have. Like we're not going to change your worthiness. This is not a journey of worthiness. It's mm-hmm. a journey of care. And I think foundationally when we shift people to this place of we're going to find out 
how better to care for yourself because you are worthy instead of we're going to figure out a way to meet external standards for having our stuff together so that I will be worthy. That changes their ability to come up with systems that work that they will stick with. So I'm reminding, because I've been listening to a lot of maintenance phase podcast, which talks a lot about diets and right elaborate mm-hmm. systems to solve all of your problems. This is the same approach a lot of people have toward toward every toward a lot of things in life, including like diets and exercise. So I just did want to lift up that I, I believe that a lot of your beliefs and sort of some of this struggle care stuff is informed by, you know, health at every size and some different body positivity. Yeah, I was I was really influenced by Caroline Dooner's book, The Fuck It Diet. I was really influenced by the movement, especially like not just the personal movement, but the political movement of health at every size and body neutrality and this idea that food is not good or bad. You know, that was sort of my beginning of thinking about food not being good or bad. And then I sort of started looking around going, well, what else isn't good or bad? Like that was so life-changing to my relationship with food and made it easier for me to have a functional relationship with food that I started looking around and going, well, what else? What else have I been thinking is some sort of morally charged obligation that actually isn't? And that's sort of how I got to Mm -hmm. struggle care. Yeah. It is just so interesting, (laughs) right? This, This question of values. And sort of what we can impose on ourselves in a way that isn't helpful. Yeah. One of the things that happens in my comment section sometimes when people will kind of leave hate comments about my house is messy, so I must be a bad mom. (laughs) Sometimes there's this like pendulum overreaction where people will be like, well, if your house is super clean, then you Mm -hmm. must be a cold, sterile mom that doesn't let them have fun or get their toys out. And, Uh you know, that's, I appreciate the sentiment, but that's not really where I'm trying to go with this because- You know, I'm trying to say that they're not related. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to say messy means that you're a good mom and clean and tidy and means that you're a bad mom or you're ignoring Mm -hmm. everyone. I mean, the reality is there are people out there with very messy, dirty homes and Mm -hmm. they're living joyful lives and their kids are well loved and everybody is happy. And there are people out there with homes that are very messy and very dirty Mm -hmm. and they are suffering. And their home is not functional and they need help with their homes. Mm -hmm. And there are people out there with museum like, you know, sanctuary homes Mm -hmm. that are happy and they like that. And that's their hobby and they're good at it. And they're able to keep their space at that level while still being a fun mom, while still engaging emotionally with their kids. And there are people out there with perfect aesthetic homes that the only way they are able to keep it that way is through an immense amount of anxiety mm-hmm. and distress mm-hmm. and they aren't able to be present for their families and they aren't able to be. So, I mean, there's these four scenarios and that's my whole point is that it is not inherently indicative of the mm-hmm. kind of person you are mm-hmm. or how well you're functioning. Yeah. We're looking at the result versus, you know, well, where, where does that drive come from and the quality of life like I don't care what your home looks like I care if you're in pain Oof. and if you're saying my home doesn't function I'm drowning I'm in pain but I want to help you and if you're saying my home functions it over functions it's perfect it looks like a magazine cover mm-hmm. and I can't stop and I'm in pain then I mm-hmm. care about that and I want to help you sort of 
bring it back down to how we can relieve that distress and focus on a functioning home rather than a perfect home. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's, that's true with so many things. Yeah. And I'm not saying like, Oh, you know, for example, I, I'm excited to see what you come up with for movement because, you know, I've seen a lot of people, you know, say they have pain and their first thing is like, well, I should lose weight. Okay. <laughs> or they want to start exercising. So they, okay, well, let me take on a big elaborate mm-hmm. regime that I might just really get tired in like two days and then feel bad about myself. So I think it's coming back to that, like, okay, how can we make this simpler? So that yes. really isn't like fixing you, but it's moving you. It's giving some momentum to your life. Yes. Momentum is a huge thing I talk about in my book. And I actually recently rewrote the book. So there's a second edition of my book, mm-hmm. same title, how to keep house while drowning that I'm releasing with Simon element, which is an imprint of Simon and Schuster. Mm-hmm. And basically what I did was, you know, I wrote the first book two years ago when I just started this journey. And since then there are so many more tips and tricks, and I've really flushed out what these concepts mean. And so when I, when I wrote the book, I basically went back through and I kept all of the content that was really helpful, but I really refined things. I added a little more nuance. I added a lot more practical tips. Mm -hmm. And I also expanded some of the contents to talk about things like eating and exercise and movement. Mm -hmm. And then I did my best to make it accessible and more, put a little more cultural humility into it. And, you know, with the help of a lot of amazing Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. So that's going to release on April 26th in the U S and in Canada through Simon Schuster. Mm-hmm. And th- that's kind of one of the things that I added into there was sort of expanding it to talk about some, some other topics like that. So mm-hmm. um, if anyone's listening and they're interested in it, you know, if it's past that date, you can buy it. If it's before that date, you can pre-order it. I'm excited. It is interesting. Like you've gotten most authors. This is a new thing to basically be able to get the kind of feedback you've gotten in real time. You know, it used to be it just sort of write a book, you put it out there into the world, people buy it or like it or they don't. <laughs> but uh, it must be interesting seeing, you know, what people bring to the table. Yes, it's I feel very, very blessed to have gotten the experience to get so much feedback to know what's helpful, what to lean into, what to add. If you are looking for some non judgmental help in not answering all your questions, (laughs) because sadly, I think we've just come to the conclusion that nobody has the solution. We have to develop our own systems in terms of what we value and what ends up fitting into the various pieces of our lives. The reality of where it is we're living right now. If you want that kind of a book, (laughs) you can look for the next edition of How to Keep House While Drowning. You also have your own podcast that's in, coming up very shortly. So that's exciting. Yeah, I'm hoping to release that. It's just called the Struggle Care Podcast. And I'm hoping to release that in the next few months as well. Mm-hmm. So, and this whole, you know, you've had your, I believe your therapy practice, but also sort of developing this struggle care it's sort of, you accidentally developed like a whole brand. <laughs> yeah, totally on accident. So what's it like, I think, telling other people, you know, speaking not judgmentally and to sort of have to like, oh, okay, I also have to like live this for myself. 
basically, is it helping you to sort of continually reinforce that work? I think one of the coolest things that I like to tell people is that this is a journey that my audience is watching me go through just Mm -hmm. as much as a journey that I'm helping other people walk through, Mm -hmm. which is why I think rewriting the book was such a cool experience because over the, the last, you know, year and a half, these concepts changed my life. Mm-hmm. And, and it didn't just change my life because all of a sudden I have a platform and a full-time job. They changed the way I was relating to my home. They made my home more functional. That did a lot for me personally and my confidence and my self-compassion. And it really helped me as a mom. You know, I was so depressed and I love my children and I'm so glad that I get to be their mom. And I find being a mom really rewarding, but I find it very rewarding on a macro level. Kids are not very sophisticated feedback loops when it comes to like the hard parts of parenting. Like they don't turn around and go, thank you for disciplining me. This is going to be such an important value for me as I grow up. And I, you know what I mean? Like you don't really get to see I'm so grateful for this dinner. That I saw you working very hard for. Yeah. I mean, you just don't get that. And so it was really well-timed to be able to engage in a meaningful way with other people's lives where I was able to hear, wow, that was a helpful thing you just said. Or, hey, I just did that in my home last week and it helped. That was really meaningful to me Mm -hmm. to feel as though, or at least get to experience some of the reward of being helpful. Yeah, just even just hearing people say, yeah, it's a it can be a grind and it's hard. And it's not just Mm -hmm. hard for you because you're a weirdo who can't get it together. It's it is hard. It's hard for everybody in their own way. How do you think we have little people and we are teaching them the basics of like, okay, you know, we we brush our teeth, we set the table, you know, this is how you know, these are the rules for our home and and how we want to live in it together. You know, how does that shape those aspects of your parenting in terms of how you break those things down for them? Yeah. The way that I approach care tasks with my kids, it's a work in progress, but what I try to keep in mind is that my goal is not like after 18 years, right? My goal is not to produce a child that is compliant with keeping their room clean. My goal is to produce a child that has a healthy relationship to care tasks Mm -hmm. that understands the functional reason for them, that knows the skills for them. Even if they don't do the skills, they know, like I've I've talked to them about it Mm -hmm. because their brains aren't going to stop, aren't going to, you know, aren't fully formed until they're 24. (laughs) They they may be like me. They might be 33. That's how old the pandemic started on their second child before they realize oh my gosh, I, I need a little help mm-hmm. with having better systems for care tasks. And my goal is for where, whenever that moment hits them in life, mm-hmm. that they have an uncomplicated relationship to care tasks, that they, they're not battling this perfectionism because their mom always wanted perfection. They're not battling you know, I don't even know how to clean because my mom never showed me. I don't want them battling all of these burdens related to care tasks that say it has to be a certain way or you know you're not good enough if it looks this way or 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 any of that baggage that we can really get with care tasks i want them to understand 
the motivation to doing them. I don't want them thinking that the point of having their room clean is because that's the rule in the house and mom will get mad. Mm -hmm. I want them to actively experience, wow, it does feel better when I know where my Legos are. Mm. And they're not going to experience that just because I explain it to them and lecture them and make them clean up, right? Like it's them, it's, it's me modeling it. It's me talking about it. It's me helping them. Those step-by-step, sometimes you don't realize how many steps there actually are to say like, yeah, washing your hands properly. (laughs) And I'm trying to be better about, I want to teach my kids things, but I want to do them with them as much as possible. Like, Mm -hmm. because my theory at this moment, like, I guess, you know, hit me up in 18 years. I'll tell you if any of this worked, but is like, if my kids can experience care tasks, like cooking and cleaning and tidying and laundry and stuff, like if they can experience those in the context of closeness with their mom, Mm -hmm. then I think that's going to go a lot longer and better than giving them the association of care tasks with like mom barking or yelling or getting upset. And I'm not saying I never do those things, but like, you know, like my kid's four, like she's probably physically capable of like picking some things up by herself and she doesn't want to. And so I go like, okay, what's the better thing? Like, should I force her to do it on their own because she needs to know that she can do it? Or like, do I say yes to when she says like, will you help me? And I guess I'm kind of at this place of like, I'm going to err on the side of let's do this together. Mm-hmm. And I'll encourage you in very small ways to, you know, do a part of that task by yourself. But I think as much as I can make it about being a family, mm-hmm. about working together, about enjoying time together, that that's going to give her a better relationship to self-care, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. than just kind of being really rigid and militant about like forcing them with through a bunch of like rewards and punishments to comply with my version of functional. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and it is interesting doing something together is different than doing something for someone, which, mm-hmm. you know, with an infant, there's a degree of that. With a four-year-old, they're they're getting more capable. And I think sometimes as, particularly as moms, I sometimes, that can sneak up on us in terms of, oh, this increased capability and I can maybe let go a little bit of responsibility. Yeah. Well, anything we can do to ease up on ourselves, I think is all to the good, especially it's still a pandemic. It's still, you know, everything. The full catastrophe of living, as <laughs> somebody once said. Is there anything else you want to add? We've had such a nice chat, covered a lot of bases. And I think even for the people who say, I don't have time to read books, (laughs) we've covered a lot of good, good concepts. And the book will come out on audiobook too, because I know that's sometimes that's like when I'm doing laundry or something, that's how I'm like listening to something. Mm -hmm. But no, I just, you know, I really hope that anyone listening is able to be a little bit more gentle with themselves today, Mm -hmm. because I think that that's sort of the first step is just, what if I just assumed that my struggles were legitimate? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Poised Powerful Parenting. I'd love it if you shared this episode with a friend who you think would benefit from it. If you'd like to know more about movement and mindfulness for new and expecting parents, head over to poisedpowerfulparenthood.com for support. 
I hope you find the support you need because you are growing and changing too.